All right, so first Samuel 3 is where we're going to be. Of course, the opening two chapters um, has that amazing story of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who is unable to have a child, and he has taken another wife named Penina, and um, she is not loved by Elkanah in the way that um, he loves Hannah, but she is able to have children. And so that bitterness and that jealousy just kind of boils up within her, and she makes uh, Hannah's life miserable and bitter. Um, on one of their trips to the tabernacle to worship there in Shechem, the Lord uh, speaks through a corrupt priest, Eli, um, not as corrupt as his sons, but still nobody wants to grow up and be like Eli, right? Um, so he prophesies over and says, wow, the Lord is going to give you what you've asked for. This is right after he rebukes her for being drunk, which she was not. And so anyway, she ends up having the Lord in the process of time, right? Gives them a child. His name is Samuel. After he's weaned, he's brought to the house of um, uh, Eli. And there he grows up. And there he is going to serve the Lord. We also find out in chapter 2 that his two sons, uh, creeps, shysters, I will pick, pick the worst name you can, and that's what they are. And that is not hyperbole, and that is not a, an exaggeration. People are coming with their sacrifices, and the meat that's supposed to be going to the Lord, they're taking it for themselves. And if they were unwilling to comply with that, then they were going to forcibly take them. They were um, having sexual relationships. These are married men. They're having sex with the women that are coming to worship at the door of the tabernacle. So, yeah, you can choose whatever, you know, uh, descriptive term you want to describe how bad they were, and it probably is not bad enough. And so this is, this is who they are. They're not a good group. Now, as we move into chapters 3 and 4, um, we're going to get a little bit more on Samuel, and then we're going to see the Lord begin to deal with the corruption that is happening. Uh, the time of 1 Samuel 2, 3, 4, this, this period of time, it is a time of the what? Does anybody remember? It's the time of the judges. And during the time of the judges, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Not in the eyes of God, but in their own eyes. And so um, the Lord is going to raise up a judge. And his name is Samuel. He's going to be the one. So what a... What a a great picture of the sovereignty of God, right? Working and moving in desperate situations like that Hannah was going through and having Penina just rip her apart and ridicule her and make her life miserable. And why can't I have a child? And why can't you have a child? And, and we know because this is the Lord had closed her womb. But he brought her to the place that in the perfect moment she would have the child, she will have been ready to dedicate that child to the purposes of the Lord, that he might grow, and that he might be raised so that he could be a judge of the nation. Now, if you have a mind like mine, you'll say, well, why did he have to go there to do that? Well, he didn't. I mean, he didn't have to, but that's what the plan was. God wanted him to be there. Maybe so we could sit here today and, and we could read this, and we could read of the terrible corruption in the house of the Lord, and we could think, somebody's got to fix this. And it's like, yeah, I will. I'm going to use a four-year-old boy. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a four-year-old boy in there, and he's going to do it. And you're like, come on, four years old? Chapter 3. <laughs> now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you've called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went and lay down again. Verse 6, then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was a word of the Lord yet revealed to him. 
And the Lord calls Samuel again the third time. You know, probably a fun study to figure out all the third times in Scripture. I'm thinking of Peter right now. I'm not necessarily drawing a connection, but it might be fun to see how many third times are there where the Lord speaks to somebody. But anyways, third time. And the Lord said to Samuel again the third time, so he rose, and the Lord called to Samuel. He rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You did call me. <laughs> Eli perceived that the Lord had called the man, the boy. He had called the boy. How are you going to fix a corrupt priesthood? What are you going to do? We'll send in a boy. That's what we'll do. And who's that boy going to be? The boy is going to be the firstborn of a woman that was unable to have a child for an extended period of time and suffered greatly under the ridicule and the shame of that Penina heaped upon her. That's what I'm going to do. God's ways are not our ways. I mean, you know, I don't think it's any more significant, but I mean, if you want to fix the White House, who are you going to send up there? Four-year-old boy might actually do pretty good, but uh, and that's without regard to party. I'm making that comment. Um, but, but this is what the Lord is doing. He's fixing the problem. I love how the Lord works. And so, um, you know, he comes in there. He finds that, you know, this, this continual calling back and forth was taking place. And uh, Eli said to, him, said to Samuel, go lie down, verse 9. And it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That is something probably all of us should underline, memorize, and learn how to say every day of our life. And I mean, not a bad way to begin the morning. Speak, Lord, your servant listens. What do you want to say to me? So he says, so Eli's got something right here at least. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. <clears throat> now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is going to really um, catch everybody's attention and nobody's going to be able to believe it. Verse 12, In that day I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. All right. Your time has come. You're old. Your eyes are dim. You're at the end of your life. And you've, got, you've wrote out your entire life let, letting corruption take place. The Lord has rebuked him for that corruption because he honored and loved his sons more than he honored and loved the Lord. But it's over. The Lord's like, I'm done with this. It's now time. And so little prophet Samuel um, is going to have to share this message. <laughs> Verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile so there's God's word for them and did not restrain them therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by or of offering there's you can't make this one right it's over the line you've gone too far I gave you space to repent and you did not repent. And now it's time for judgment. Verse 14, Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or of offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. So I guess maybe that was one of his little jobs to do. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. How many of you have ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been impressed that you have to tell somebody something and you feel like Samuel? Like, no, 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 I don't want to say that. Please, Lord, rapture me home. I mean, don't make me have to go and say this. And you feel like Samuel, you're afraid to tell what you just heard. Why are you afraid? Mm, because it's not good news. This is actually... It's the antithesis of good news. It's judgment news. It's a condemning word. 
It's a rebuke from the Lord. So little, Sam, little boy Samuel is like, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm afraid of what may happen. Verse 16, then Eli called Samuel and Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? He answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Now, we don't read pause here, but I have been a dad. And I, you, know, you know what it's like when you're trying to get an answer from your kid and you ask the question. And there's a lot of fidgeting that happens. And there's a lot of maybe head dropping. And I, I, it's easy for me to picture little fearful boy Samuel um, just having a hard time doing this. Maybe not. Maybe there is no pause. But he says, please do not hide it from me. God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Well, Eli knows that he's due for judgment. I mean, right? I mean, isn't that what he said? I mean, you could put this in other words. Samuel, you better tell me how God told you he was going to judge me. And if you're unwilling to tell me how he's going to judge me, I hope he does judges you the same way, but worse. And that's essentially what he's saying. I mean, he knows that he's in the wrong. He knows the prophet's already come to him. Again, chapter 2, the unnamed prophet has already come and rebuked him. He has not responded. And so the word of the Lord is rare in those days. The revelation was not very widespread. And you can imagine old, convicted, guilty uh, Eli sitting in the room saying, is the word of the Lord coming to this young boy? Hmm. Well, I was spoken to by that older prophet, but is he coming to the I, to a boy? Well, there was a miraculous birth. There was something that was pretty amazing with this child, and he probably pondered it all night and thought, "I'm about to get rebuked again." I think he probably. I imagine he could have spoke exactly what Samuel had received, but he wants to hear it from him. And so he says, speak the truth, speak the truth. I think this is probably a good word for all of us is that we don't hide the word from people. We don't hide truth from people. And quite often, now Eli's going to respond quite well. All right, he's going to receive what is said. He's going to receive it. But that's not the way it always goes. The way it often goes is exactly the way Samuel was afraid it was going to go. And we, we, we have these conversations where I know I've got to talk to that brother, that sister, my, my spouse, my son, you know, my daughter, my friend, whatever. I've got to talk to him. But they're not going to like it. Yeah, that's, that, that happens a lot. And Jesus kind of like told you. He warned you. He goes, they didn't like what I had to say, and you're not better than me. <laughs> so they're not going to like what you have to say when you speak in my name. So we, there's no surprise here, um, but we, we all can identify with the emotions that he's feeling. He's like, I know what to say. I've got this hard thing to say, but I don't want to say it. But you, but you know, you have to. And there have been many, many moments in my life. And I, I you know, I mean, I very rarely, I can't, I'm trying to think of a time where I've ever felt intimidated to speak boldly the word of the Lord from the front of wherever we were gathering our meeting. I can't really think of a time where I ever felt that way. Um, I, we're in the house of the Lord. You're here to the word, hear the word of the Lord. And, and I'm just not, I don't really get afraid or uptight. I know when I'm heading into controversial you know, territory and troubled waters, but I, I, I never like, I think I'm my skill. I don't know that I've ever had that thought in my mind standing right here. But in private conversation with other people, well... Yeah, it's a, it's a different environment, right? It's like they're not sitting down to hear me teach a Bible study. I'm inviting them to go have a cup of coffee, which is really not a cup of coffee. It's a cup of correction, right? And you're, you're going to speak it out. And, and you know, it's a, it's a different circumstance. So I think all of us understand this, that, that feeling, that emotion. But this word from Eli, it's, it, I don't know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a prophetic word to you. Of something you've got to say to somebody. You know, God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. 
And so, don't do it. So, uh, to my shame, I, I can identify one clear moment in my life when the Lord spoke to me and told me to go speak to somebody. And um, I was like, oh, Lord, that's got to be from me. That is just the bizarrest thought that anybody could ever have. Why would that? And I'm, I'm beginning to rebuke myself that I would have a thought about another person like that. And I couldn't shake it. And the funny thing was, is I, and I can tell you exactly where I was. I was passing by the Candler's Mountain Road exit on, you know, on, on 460, and I was, I was heading east, and um, we had a couple of miles before I met that person. And I, I, it's like I just couldn't get away from it. I saw the person, I, and it was not the right moment to do that. I said, hey, we've got to get together and talk. And he said, all right, yeah, let's do it. So we, we set a time to get together and talk. And I am, in, I am like Samuel. I am so afraid to bring this up because I have no evidence of the sin that I'm about to call him out on. You, you can pick out an egregious sin, and it's right there. And so I, I'm supposed to, the Lord just said, you got to speak to him. you gotta, you got to call him. I'm like, I am not. How can I do that? So now it's the night of the meeting and I'm working through this and, you know, we're getting together and going to his house. And um, I, I, I've agreed with the Lord that I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. And I am just, I'm, I'm fearful. And I get there and I sit down and I just say, hey man, I got something that's really heavy on my heart. And um, I don't know how you're going to receive it. But I've got to say it, and I guess I'll just start by asking, um, how are you doing your walk with the Lord? And he said, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well at all. And I go, what's going on? And he confessed to a really terrible sin, which was a lie. It was a terrible sin, but it was a lie. There was the sin that was on my mind to confront him on um, was the actual sin. But he, he took it down a notch from what was actually going on. And in my mind, I was like, yes, I'm so glad that he's not doing that. This is still bad. We'll deal with this. I'm glad I didn't have to call him out. And I felt really good about it. Until about a year later, left the church and came out living a homosexual lifestyle. And I was devastated. I'm like, man. I knew, I knew that's what the Lord had said, but I was so afraid and I so didn't want to confront that that I was willing to let him kind of like, you know, put me off the, the trail of what the Lord had clearly said. Good friend of mine. And um, I, man, I don't know. If he's listening right now, call me if, you're, if you want to talk. I love talking. He's been unwilling to talk with me since that, that day, and that was many, many years ago. And um, we tried to go out and talk to him. Never would receive it. Was, it was, I had my moment to confront him. I don't know what he would have done. But that's not my job, is it? It's not your job. Our job is just to deliver the word of the Lord. And so I, I know how Samuel feels. But I also know what it feels like to not do what Samuel did. And I would rather have dealt with the prior feeling of fear of what's about to happen to live in the past, looking back on regret, that I didn't say what needed to be said. So, listen, don't hide it. If the Lord's put it on your heart, go up and do it. Now, pray about it. I mean, pray about it. Wait upon the Lord and, and see what he says. Don't go share it with everybody, though, if you have that, because that's the Lord told you, not everybody. So, yeah, th this may apply. I'm, I'm sure this probably does apply to some of you. And, you know, we live in days and... You know, some people, some people, um, you know, they take high offense at delivering the word of the Lord to them. And you know that if you deliver the word of the Lord, not your angry, upset disappointment of them that they didn't live up to the family standards. That's not it. If they are not following the Lord and you are not able to bring that correction, and you know that if you bring up the correction that it's going to result in them cutting off a relationship with you, what is more important to you? What's more important to me? <clears throat> I've tried to grow from that moment in my life of failure, but um, 
what's more important? Is delivering the word of the Lord that can spare a life more important? Or is maintaining a relationship that you currently have more important? You know, the doctrine of emotionalism rules so many decisions that we make today. And um, so it's how I feel and the consequences, and I just can't do that and this and that, and I love them too much. I'm sure you love them, but you don't love them too much because if you loved them too much, you would be sharing the word of the Lord. So I know this applies. I know this has impact, and I'll let you go wrestle with the Lord. I'll let you, maybe, maybe this is the fourth time you've heard somebody say this to you. If it is, go do it. Um, but if it's the first time, um, go do it as well. So there's this whole interesting scene that's going on. Um, and, you know, as we keep on looking, um, let's see, we pick it up. Um, verse 18, then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. <laughs> it's like, you're a knucklehead. You know, God can do whatever he wants to do. Yeah, of course he can do whatever he wants to do. But do you think you're getting this message? I mean, come on. Repent, humble yourself. Verse 20. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Little boy Samuel. And the day in which the word of the Lord was rare... And there was not widespread revelation. God uses. God raises them up. I want to talk a little bit more just about this, this gift of prophecy. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that is surrounded. He is a prophet. He is prophesying. He's speaking the word of the Lord. Um, pro- the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is spoken of in Romans chapter 12, verse 6. It's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10. It's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 14. And there are allusions to this gift in other places as well, and we're going to look at some of them. But how do we define? I think all of us kind of intuitively, we know what prophecy is, and we read it, and we understand it, and we're not like, I've got to get a dictionary. I mean, probably none of you thought, I need a dictionary right now, that he you know, was established as a prophet of the Lord. We, kind of, we have this kind of, Built-in Bible knowledge. But if you have to define it, then you are like, prophecy, defining. And, then, and now, you've, now you actually got to pause a little bit, right? And you've got to begin to work, work this out. So let, let's define it. And there's, I think there's two aspects of prophecy that I, that I want us to see. And the first one is foretelling. And it's the one that most of us understand it's what Samuel just did. And it is announcing, so foretelling, this aspect of prophecy, is announcing future events before they take place. Samuel prophesied, you're in big trouble, you're going to be judged. Yes, that's right. So he announced the future events that were going to take place. So we find this in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I mean, the list goes on and on of Elijah, Elisha, those prophets written of, they prophesy of future events, and, and they're all over. But in the New Testament, we, ha- we see a man by the name of Agabus, and in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, um, he prophesies um, of a, a coming famine um, that's going to take place. And um, so that happens. In chapter 21, um, another prophecy comes of how uh, Paul's going to be thrown into prison. And so we see that Agabus functioned as a, pof- a prophet foretelling future events. A famine is coming. Paul's going to be arrested and he's going to be bound like this. And then he put on a little, you know, demonstration of how he's going to be bound using Paul's sash. This is how you're going to be bound. So, I mean, he was into props. And so he, 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 he played it out. So, we're talking about prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, it's foretelling future events. That, that's one example of, of uh, that aspect of prophecy. But the second aspect of prophecy, which is what we don't often think of, is actually the type of prophecy that is most used in the Bible. And it is forthtelling. Not foretelling, forthtelling. What do I mean by forthtelling? Speaking words of exhortation and comfort. You are forthtelling. You're speaking forth the word of the Lord, specifically words of exhortation 
and comfort. And I, I derive that from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 3. And this is what we read. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue speaks, does not speak to men, but to God. So if, you, if somebody speaks in tongues, when we read tongues in Scripture, it is a vertical conversation. If you doubt that, go and read every time you see the tongues used and the descriptor, if it's given, of what's said, and it's always vertical. It's always a conversation that's directed to the Lord. And this is what we read right here. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Here you go. Verse to get to. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. So I guess if you want to add edification to be uh, completely right there, you should put that in there. Speaking words of edification, exhortation, and comfort. That is the kind of prophecy that the majority of the Bible is made up of. Is somebody speaking exhortation, somebody speaking edification, somebody speaking a word of comfort. And so you have those that functioned in the office of prophet in the New Testament that actually wrote these words of edification and exhortation and comfort down. And it makes up a good portion of the, the New Testament is that kind of, of ministry. Um, so that happens. But I think what we need to understand, well, let's, let's stay here. In 1 Corinthians 14, 2 and 3, Paul tells the Corinthians um, who the audience is with tongues and who the audience is with prophecy. Um, we do not need to praise and bless men, right? So we don't speak in tongues to them. And we don't need to exhort God. <laughs> so tongues is a vertical conversation. Prophecy is a horizontal don't need to exhort God, and you don't need to praise me. So tongues is a praise to the Lord. Prophecy is spoken to men. So take the time to read it. I know some of you are hearing this like for the first time. You're trying to process it. And all I have to say is just study the passage. Just read these verses and dissect them line by line, word by word, and, and you'll, you'll see this. So... In the body of Christ, we are able to bring comfort. Um, we are able to bring edification. We are able to bring exhortation with the use of this gift of prophecy. So some will look at this and say, I don't know. But look what he says there in verse 1 again about the importance of this gift. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So, all right, let's set the context. As he's speaking at a, a, a school of prophets that Jesus has ordained and set up. No, that's not who he's speaking to. Who is he speaking to? The church at Corinth. Corinth. <laughs> he's talking to the people that were getting drunk during communion service before the service started. He's talking to people that were disregarding the poor and at the potluck ate all the food before the poor people that were working in the field got there and they showed up and there was no food left for the pot for you know in the in, you know on the table and those that were there were sloshed. This is not a a group of prophets that are sitting around appointed by the Lord. It's the Corinthians. To the Corinthians who were zealous for spiritual gifts and needed correction, but Paul commended in the opening chapter that they were zealous for these things. He says, good job. Um, <laughs> this is a good thing. So th this is one area that was great. So when he said pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, we need to understand these were just, this was a exhortation to the congregants, not the leadership of the church. And as you read through that chapter, do it on your own, you'll understand this is just general instruction uh, to the church. So prophecy, this gift of prophecy that we should desire, and what should our desire be like? We should pursue it. And I encourage you to go look up that word pursue. Go to Blue Letter Bible, 
get a word study, get theirs out, do a word study on pursue. This is a word that's going to be, in some instances, translated as persecute. So in persecute, you're like, why would it be that? Because you've got to pers- pursue somebody to persecute them. And so this word, negative, positive, depending on the context, but you get a sense of the force of this word, right? This is not, hey, if you got time and you feels right and you think you might be interested, you ought to consider maybe that you should prophesy. No. He's like, go hunt this one down. Go get this gift. Now, the Spirit will give us as he wills, but that is the word that we read right there. So how does this gift function? Well, it will function as somebody teaches, as somebody teaches the word of God. The Spirit, the, the, the spirit can speak those words of exhortation and comfort and edification. And you can sit in a sermon, and you all know this by experience. You can sit listening to a sermon, and it's the word of the Lord, and it's good, and it's edifying. And there's like, yes, that's good, that's right, that's a great insight. Okay, this is interesting. Oh, I didn't know that, or I'm reminded of this, or I wonder why he didn't say that. And you're pondering all these things about the word, and then something is said, and it's like, pause. Your mind just stops. It's not... It's like the information that's coming is all right and good, but it's different now. Because now it's speaking directly to an event or a decision or something in your life. Has anybody ever had that experience? You're like, oh, that. that was for me. I can remember being down at a pastor's conference uh, many years ago. I don't know. I can't even remember how many years ago. It was before we, we were still in a rented facility right over here on Timber Oak Court. And um, we were down there at a pastor's conference. And... Um, one of the pastors was up there talking and he says, some of you need to go back to your hometown and you need to go buy that church building. And I was like, I was looking and it just was like, I don't know how to describe it. But I don't know the right biblical words, but I'll just tell you, it was all over me. It's like, that is exactly what I need to do. And I'm looking around the room thinking, I bet everybody feels like this. And I'm the only one that seems to be touched by that moment. I don't know if it applied to anybody else, but you know, within six months, we had a building. And, and, and so, you know, the, the, there can be that comfort, there can be that exhortation that comes. So it comes through the gift of teaching. You know, people say, well, you know, why don't you give more opportunity for prophecy? Well, I think, I think it's happening all the time where we're listening to the word of the Lord. So I, I feel great. It also happens in our conversations. It's not just for the pastor, it's for the congregants, right? So you're sitting down, for a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, you're out on the golf course, you're, you're just, you know, you're having a Zoom with your, your daughter, your son, and, and now you have an opportunity to begin to speak, foretell, prophesy words of comfort and edification and exhortation. And so that gift is functioning and it's working and moving in this very simple, wonderful, blessed way. We also... I encourage you to come out on Sunday nights and you'll see many opportunities where this is encouraged and we're looking for people to share and speak. And sometimes, you know, something of something, speaking of things that are yet to come and it is foretelling and sometimes it is, most of the time it is foretelling. Speaking the word of the Lord. So uh, guidelines for prophecy. Uh, number one, it must agree with the written word of God. That seems pretty obvious to say that's obvious. Yes, it has to agree with the written word of God. Galatians 1a says, but even if we, Paul, Timothy, Silas, his traveling companions, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. So if somebody comes and prophesies and it is in disagreement with the word of God that's already been delivered to us, don't receive it. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says that everything is to be tested. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. So when somebody begins to speak and they're talking about things, we are to be discerning, Lord, is this from you or is this just somebody talking right now? So we've had times when people have come and they've written, you know, three, four, five pages about a prophecy that they have that they want to be delivered to the whole church. I read it and I look at it and I think, that is not going to be shared. That is not of the Lord. As I test this, I don't see anything unbiblical, but I do, it does not bear witness with my spirit that that is what is to be spoken. 
Um, but it says here, you know, let the rest judge. And you know what I've done in those instances, I've taken that and I've laid it in front of the elders without any commentary. Here's the letter, read it. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And so, um, you know, in the one instance, somebody's, they're reading it like, are you going to do this? You know, I'm like, I go, read the letter. Read the letter. Read the letter. So I read the letter. And, you know, like, are, what, what are, you, are you saying we're going to do this? I'm, just, I'm here to ask you. We're supposed to judge when somebody prophesies. Let me ask you, what is your conclusion about this prophecy? And, you know, it's, you know, absolutely not. Okay, that's exactly what I thought. But I didn't want to predispose them to a decision, right? So th this is what I do. But, you know, you don't always get to bring it before the elders, right? Sometimes it's just, it's going to be, a, you know, there's five of you sitting down and somebody's going to say something that's wrong. And I just had a prophetic word and it's this and it's that. It's like, yeah, I don't agree with you. <laughs> I don't agree with you. That doesn't agree with scripture. That doesn't bear witness in my spirit that that's what the Lord is going to do. Um, if, it, if it just doesn't bear witness, then I'll say, I, it doesn't bear witness. And I pretty much can tell you, I don't think this is from the Lord, but I will pray about it. And if the Lord calls me up, like he, you say he called you up, then I'll know that it's from him. But other than that, I'm not going to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. How could you quench the spirit? You could despise prophecy. What is prophecy? It is speaking words of comfort and exhortation and edification. It is forthtelling. It is also foretelling, speaking of things that are going to come. So do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. No, I think some in their zeal to test and make certain that we allow no spurious teaching or thought to come in have unfortunately thrown the baby out with the bathwater and say, and you'll hear this, prophecy is no longer for today. So ask that person to define it. What do you mean by prophecy? They're probably going to say, this is probably what they're going to say, nobody should speak any more words because we have the final revelation of the word of God. Right. We know that. We're told that. Um, they actually concluded that they had the word of the Lord and that if somebody was going to speak that they shouldn't it shouldn't be accepted but the things that are being spoken in 1 Corinthians 14 by those that have the gift of prophecy those that are speaking in 1 Thessalonians 5 these are not New Testament writers these are not officers of the church these are just congregants and so this gift um while it did reside uniquely and only with those first generation um, writers of the New Testament that you could say functioned as apostles and prophets, laying down the foundation of the church. They are not to be duplicated. There is no more revelation to be found. I agree 100%. And if somebody adds something to it, they should be considered accursed. But that does not mean that the gift has gone away. As we've defined it previously. No more scripture. But can he talk about, you're going to go to jail? Can the Lord say that through a prophet? I believe that he can. And so this is something that is unfortunate. People say this no longer exists. Then why are we told to pursue it? Why are we told to not despise prophecies? I think if you're going to say that prophecy is not for today and understanding the differences that were existed in the first century with the New Testament writers and the more general um, gift, if you're going to say that, you better have a stronger verse than do not despise prophecies. <laughs> You, you better have a stronger verse that says, um, then pursue prophecy to, to move us off of that mark. So this is, I think, unfortunately, in a zeal to guard truth, we, have, we, we say this gift doesn't function. But I'll have to say, even those who say that this gift doesn't function, it still functions. It still functions. Because you can find the person that is most adamantly against this gift and you will find them speaking words of comfort and edification and exhortation. But this is, an, this is important for us to see. And so I think there is that misunderstanding of prophecy. Don't despise it. Pursue it. Last thought about this gift is that when you look in Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 21... Verses 1 through 14, they're gathered in the upper room. The day of, fully, of Pentecost has fully come. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Tongues of fire over each of the 120 that are gathered in the upper room. And they are speaking 
um, in other tongues. And again, you can check me. I say that prophecy is directed heavenward. And if you listen to, or if you read, you'll find that the listeners tell you the general context of the message. They were speaking about the wonderful works of God. And so it is vertical. Um, and as you go through that, and, and they say, what in the world is going on? How are you guys speaking these other languages? And all the languages are, are, are mentioned there in, in chapter 2 that are, that are being spoken. How is this happening? Some mocked and said, you're drunk, which is the lamest excuse ever, explanation ever. Drunk people don't usually learn foreign languages and speak coherently, let alone in their own given tongue, right? So that's, that's not the answer. Um, so others would, would say, well, well, what is this? Peter responds, he says, this is exactly what Joel said would happen. And he said that your sons and your daughters, right? This is what he goes on. I'll, let me just read beginning at verse 15. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by J the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the first days after Jesus has resurrected until the uh, last uh, apostle has died. It doesn't say that. What it says is, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and the leaders of the church will prophesy. No, it doesn't say that. It says your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Of course, Philip had four, I think it was four, it was four daughters that prophesied. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. So if you, if you look at this, the, the, the timestamp of when this gift should be functioning is right now, last days. It'll function in the last days. Don't despise it because you'll quench the spirit. It'll be in the last days. Pursue it, hunt it down. Be one that can speak forth words of comfort and edification and exhortation. And if you speak of future things, then okay, that's another aspect of it. But I would say, like the Bible, most of the gift of prophecy is going to function in that second part of the definition. You know an interesting thing that also people will say about prophets? Um, if you have the gift of prophecy, I, I can remember I was teaching for a, a, a missions group and um, I was invited to come in and be a guest speaker there. And so um, they were going on missions, and I was asked to come and speak, so I was there. And I said, well, tell me what you guys have learned so far. We've, we've, done, we've been talking about gifts and stuff. And I go, well, tell me about what some of you think some of the gifts are. So people are talking about, well, what is that? And we're going through it. And then, and then one guy said, he goes, yeah, he goes, I'm a prophet because I'm a really harsh, you know, kind of a person. I said, What? He says, yeah, and they go, yeah, he is. He just, like, he, he just doesn't know how to phrase things right. He's just harsh. He's brash. And, um, yeah, so he, he's got the gift of prophecy. And I said, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 3. Let, let's read that together. And what does it say? That he who has this gift is going to what? Speak words of comfort and edification and exhortation. And I love the response of these young people. They said, well, that book was stupid because that doesn't agree with Scripture. You know, that's how young people are, right? They're going to just define it right away. That doesn't line up. Can a prophet be given a hard message to speak? Well, little boy Samuel would say, yeah. But that's different than harsh. A hard word is not a harsh word. And so sometimes the hard word is the most loving, kind, generous thing you can say to a person. So all kinds of misconceptions about whether this gift is for today, what, how, you know, what is a person like who uses it. Well, I hope just looking at the word of God here um, helps you kind of frame this up from a biblical point of view. And I would say to you, pursue love, but also pursue and desire that you may prophesy. There's plenty of room in the church for one more edifier. There's plenty of room for one more person to bring comfort. There is plenty of room for somebody to come and give an exhortation. And if this is a gift you have, and you've been told that crankiness is the personality and the way in which gifts of prophecy works, well, keep walking the gift of prophecy, but... You know, 
be, be, be nice, okay? You can speak with loving, generous terms and, and voices, and there may be a time to speak a hard word, but it's never a harsh word. All right, so I realize that is like a major um, uh, diversion there, but I, I really wanted to just settle in on that for a moment. We're going to quickly move through um, chapter 4. In chapter 4, God actually judges the house of Eli. And it's going to happen in maybe a surprising way. If you don't know this story, maybe when we talked about him being judged, you began to think about how it was going to happen. I bet you didn't guess this. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. As a ma- can you go ahead and put that map up right now so you guys can begin to see um, as we're reading through there and see these geographical places. So it's starting at the top right um, is Shiloh. I said Shechem earlier. It's a Shiloh where the tabernacle is. And that's, that's where Eli is. So the top right and then you can just follow the arrows um, as it goes. It's basically going to just do a circuit. Um, so uh, this is what we're given here. This is a, there. It arrives in Aphek. Um, then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells in in the Lord of Hosts is Um, Yahweh of the armies of Israel. So they're thinking Lord of hosts, right? They're not, they're not looking for, you know, you know, the lamb of God. They want the the guy who's in charge of all the armies of heaven to come. That's what's meant by, by this phrase here. So they're thinking battle. They're thinking God's going to fight for them. And um, so verse uh, four, they asked for it to come and they, that they might bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas who were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. They're excited. We are going to win now, boys. Um, verse 6, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, They said, what does the sound of this great shout and the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. Has he? Has he come? And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled. You didn't expect that, did you? Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the judgment is beginning to happen. They have a war and they're wondering, you know, how should we fight this? Now, the ark of the covenant, prior to this day, had been in Shiloh for 369 years. I'm a very long, longer than, you know, we've been a nation by far. For 369 years, it had been in Shiloh. But the thing I want us to see here is that they, Israel at this time has a superstitious faith, don't they? 
It's superstitious. They're, they go and they take the Ark of the Covenant. Put up the slide. You've seen maybe this before, but in case you haven't, the, the Ark of the Covenant is a rectangular box with a lid that is called, does anybody know what the lid is called? The mercy seat. Maybe you've heard the term or you've, we sing the song mercy seat and you're thinking of, you know, like a chair in the house of the Lord. No, it's not that. It's, it's that seat. And here's the cool thing. This is free. You don't have to even pay for this bit of information. The mercy seat, if you were to transliterate it from, or to translate it from the Greek Septuagint, would come out as the word propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. If you want to work it back, he is the mercy seat. Well, what happens on the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat was where once a year the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the lamb for the sins of the nation. What's inside the box? Well, we know some of the things that were in there. There was uh, Aaron's rod that had budded. There was a jar of manna. Uh, what else was in there? One other key thing. The, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. And so Israel has to obey the tablets. The tablets are put there. They broke the tablets. The mercy seat is put on top. And the blood covers the broken commandments of the, you know, within Israel. And so once a year, you come in there. And it was to have poles so they could carry it on their shoulders. It will be very key to know that in the coming weeks um, as we study this. And so this, this is it. They've captured this. It represented where the presence of God was. The Shekinah glory would fill the room where this ark, this, this box was in the Holy of Holies. And it represented the presence of God. And so they're like, we need to get the box here. We need to get the ark of the covenant here because that's the presence of God. And then when he gets here, we'll get what we want. We'll get victory. The sad thing is they're interested in victory and they're not interested in the presence of God. How do I know that? Because if they were interested in the presence of God, when that came into the camp, the first thing they would have done was fall into their knees, began to rip their clothes and weep and gnash their teeth and make sacrifices for their sins because everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So they're not interested in the presence of God. They're interested in the byproduct of the presence of God. And God's like, yeah, you don't get to do that with me. I'm not your lucky rabbit's foot, okay? I'm not that lucky charm that you get just to pull out you know, whenever you are in trouble and I'll be there. And now listen, God is gracious and merciful and he will show up in times when we don't deserve it. And all of us probably have a testimony of that. But there also comes a time when God says, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done with your house, Eli. Your sons are going to go down. I'm going to get the nation's attention. And so this happens. They are, are taken. Let's pick up the story. Let's wrap it up. Verse 12. Uh, then a, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day, and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. So he didn't know what was going on. He was concerned that it was going to make it back. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old. He had 98 years to do it right. His eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he had mentioned the ark of God, that Eli, he expected his sons to die, but he didn't expect this. When he heard this, Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He's fat. And he had judged Israel for 40 years. There's your judge. Here's the interesting thing. We read last week that they were making them, themselves fat with the offerings that they were ripping off of the people. Do you see a little bit of irony there? <laughs> you want to get fat? Okay, you can get fat. And you're going to fall over and you're going to die because you're so fat. 
because you've disobeyed me. You've disregarded me. You have stolen what was to be for me. You've corrupted the worship of my name so that people abhor it and don't even want to come into my presence anymore. So he could endure the, the loss of the some 34,000. He could endure the loss of his two sons, but the ark of the covenant of God is gone. Because God doesn't live inside a box. <laughs> if his presence was manifested above the mercy seat, that did not mean he was tied to the box. He was graciously manifesting his presence in their midst that they might know that their God is among them. Eli learned that day that you reap what you sow. But you know, you just you go through this, and he already knew that though, didn't he? I mean, he already knew. He already knew the ark was going to be in trouble. He's an interesting kind of a guy. I mean, he's not like the worst guy compared to his sons, but he's messed up. Well, let's wrap it up. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of, the, of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about that time of her death... So now another one dies in the family. The women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, did, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod. What does that mean? The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And indeed, the glory of the Lord did depart. It was gone. It left. When that ark went out there, it caused the enemies to tremble. But when they actually came to confront the army of Israel, God was not in their camp. Yeah, a golden box was in their camp but not the presence of the Lord. And so Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Do you know what this reminds me of? The churches in Revelation. And I'm not going to read, th I, I thought I was going to have time to read through some, I, I'm out of time, but you've got a Bible and you have time when you get home. Read chapters two and three again. Just read them all. It won't take you long. To read chapters two and three tonight and note the presence of God in the midst of the church. And you're like, well, this was Old Covenant, Ichabod. That's, that's Old Covenant. Read chapters 2 and 3 and read of how the Lord is on the outside of the church knocking to get in. His presence is on the outside. Read of how he says he's going to take their lampstand away. Read about the presence of God. And there should be a holy fear that comes over us as a church and over our own lives. God is holy and he wants us to live in such manner. Well, I've got this lucky, you know, Bible. I've got this lucky family heritage. I've got, you have nothing lucky. You have the presence of an almighty God who has saved you by his grace and mercy that calls you and me to walk in humility and holiness before him. And for those that don't, he warns and says, I'll take away your lampstand. I will snuff out the light. Read of the warnings that are given in the book of Revelation to the church of Jesus Christ. It sounds a lot like Ichabod. But we can do better. We can do better than Eli. We can know the, and hear the word of the Lord tonight, and we can make it right with him right now. Let's do it. Father, thank you for your word, Old Testament, New Testament, the ability just to sit down, to have the time to just sit down like this and talk through and ponder the word of God. Your truth, to see the application to our life. Lord, help us to be those men and women that you've called us to be. Help us to walk in that, uh, to be those prophets and those prophetesses that you said would, would be around in the last days because you would pour out your spirit. Lord, pour your spirit out upon us. Teach us, Lord, the voice when you speak like little, little Samuel. To know what the word of the Lord is and how to speak it. And not to be afraid to speak it. Or when we're afraid, to not let us keep it back, that word. Lord, may you stir this gift up. We just, Lord, right now, we pursue this gift 
And the only way we know to pursue it is to call upon you. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us this gift. And Lord, we will use this for your glory and honor, for the edification of your church. We will be like little boy Samuel. We will listen and we will hold nothing back. We will not hide what you say. So Lord, give us boldness. Lord, if there is corruption and idolatry and if there's just sin that's just settled in on our life, just it's there day in and day out. Lord, we repent of it. We turn from it. Lord, we celebrate your presence and we acknowledge you are a holy God and you are here in the midst of your lampstand and we don't want that to ever change. We want your presence here, Lord, each and every time we, we gather together as your church. We need it, Lord. There's no fat. There's no thing we could possibly lay our hands on that would ever be greater than your presence in our midst. So thank you that you walk in the midst of the lampstand. Thank you that you're here tonight speaking. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 